Thank you for listening to this message from Sovereign Grace Community Church in Denver, Colorado. We pray that you are encouraged and edified by it. You can find more information about Sovereign Grace Community Church by visiting our website at www.sgccdenver.org. If you would like to make a donation to our small ministry, you can do so using the Donate button on our website or on the SGCC Denver Sermon Audio page. Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. Let's continue our worship in prayer. Our Father, we are gathered together as your, your saints throughout the world. We are gathered in your name. And when we say that we are gathered in your name, we mean that we are gathered in the truth of who you are. Not simply as those who can speak the truth of who you are, but who embody the truth of who you are. As your image children, we have become the image bearers, the image children that you intended for human beings all along by sharing in the true image son. And so we gather today as your people who bear your life and your likeness. And Father, these are marvelous things. They're hard for us to speak of and much, much harder for us to even get our minds around. What a glorious thing to think that we see reflected in ourselves and in one another your glory that is in the face of Christ. And that by your good spirit, we are being transformed from glory unto glory. What a glorious privilege, what a high calling. And I pray, Father, as we continue our worship today and, and return to consider the burden and the longing of this writer to these Hebrew believers, I pray that you would give us ears to hear, that you would instruct us, that you would exhort us, that we would be enlightened and that we would grow through the ministry of your word led out and informed, pressed deep into us by your good spirit. So meet us, Father, for the sake of your glory in Christ, for the sake of our faithfulness to the life that we have in him, to the calling that you have given to us, to the stewardship of your gospel. May we in all things prove faithful. Help us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we continue in this last closing set of exhortations in the epistle to the Hebrews, uh, as the writer continues to issue these exhortations, he now turns his reader's gaze outward. We saw last time in considering this obligation of contentment, 
that the writer directed the, the gaze of his readers to their own hearts and to where they were looking to find resource and relief in their own struggle of faith. Where would they really find sufficiency? Where would they really find all provision and all satisfaction? Well, now as he turns their gaze outward, he calls them to consider those who have stood alongside them, those who have served them, those who have ministered to them. So read with me, and and we'll go back to verse 1, but today considering verses 7 and 8, but just to again kind of lay out these exhortations in our own hearing. He says, let the love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect, stop neglecting is the idea, hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without even knowing it. Remember the prisoners as though you were in prison with them. And those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Let your character be free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has told you, he has said, I will never desert you, I will never forsake you. So that we may confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What shall man do to me? And remember those who lead you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the outcome of their manner of life, imitate their faith. Jesus the Messiah is the same yesterday and today, yes, and forever. As I said, the writer here now tells, uh, he instructs his readers to turn their gaze outward to those who are leading them, those who are uh, involved in shepherding them in some capacity. And as much as these verses pass by very quickly, I think that they're incredibly profound. And, And I hope and I pray today as I've meditated on this and wrestled with it this week that I'll be able to open up some of these things and that we'll be able to uh, actually be uh, catch some sort of a glimpse, maybe a fresh set of eyes on, on the profoundness of what the writer is getting at here. As again, he continues to exhort his readers to persevere in faith. This is all still situated within the larger idea, uh, the burden of the writer to the Hebrews, that they would be encouraged, that they would be strengthened in faith, that they would persevere in faithfulness. And this is very much set within that context. Well, this exhortation has two parts uh, very closely related, and the second part actually flows out of the first part. But the first part is this, remember those who are leading you. And just very briefly, there are different views as to who these individuals are. Three of the most common views tied back to the epistle itself is that the first view is that he is referring to these uh, faithful ancestors that he discussed in chapter 11. Remember those who went before you in the faith pulling them back to uh, that, those ideas, the, that, that roll call of faith in chapter 11. There are those who say, no, he's referring to the apostolic witnesses, those who, as representatives of the apostles, brought the gospel to them, as he says in chapter 2. 
These things were first, this salvation was spoken by the Lord, and then it was communicated to us by those who heard him. And so those who first brought the gospel uh, to this community of Hebrews such that they came to faith. The third view is that this would refer to the shepherding leaders within the community of this believing community of Hebrews. And that's tied to even the way that he refers to these leaders in this wider context as we move in uh, even forward, verse 14. Leaders, leaders in the church, those who are continuing to be shepherds in the church. I think that that however we conclude specifically, the writer is referring to individuals who have played a significant part in the faith of these individuals and in the nurturing of that faith. Those who have instructed them in the word and those who have also testified by their faithful lives, by their manner of life. So he says, these are those who have spoken the word of God to you. They have instructed them in the truths of the scripture. But I think in context, what's implied is the truths of the scripture as the scriptures testify to this Messiah who has now shown himself to be Jesus of Nazareth. The one who has come. The one who has shown all of the promises of God to be yes and amen in him. And so these were ones who came and, in a sense, explained the scriptures to them as Jewish believers who knew the scriptures, but had to come to think of them in a different way. Even as you see Paul going into the synagogues and reasoning with the Jews that they would come to see their own scriptures in the light of Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah God has given to Israel and to Israel so that through Israel on behalf of the world. But importantly, secondly, these were also leaders who embodied in their own persons, in their own practice, the living reality of the truths that they proclaimed. They are those who spoke the word of God, the word of God that is yes and amen in the Messiah, but they are also those who embodied in themselves the truths that they proclaimed. And this gets at that fundamental idea that you hear me bring up a lot in different settings, different contexts. Christians are themselves the living proof of the truth of the gospel. Christians are themselves the living proof of the good news of God's triumph in his son and the new creational kingdom that he has inaugurated If the gospel is the good news that in Jesus of Nazareth, God has accomplished, he has fulfilled all that he purposed, all that he promised, all that he built the case for throughout the salvation history. If if the gospel is the good news of the kingdom of God, the good news of creational renewal in the Messiah, it begs the question, where is the proof? of that triumph? Where is the evidence that that good news is true? And it is in those human beings who themselves are the first fruits of that new creation. 
And we'll deal with that more as we go along. But these were individuals who were playing a significant role in the life of this community. And he calls them to remember them. Remember them. And this isn't just a fond recollection. You know, there are those who believe that these were individuals who ministered at a time and now are gone for whatever reason. Uh, But the idea then is just, you know, remember them fondly is how people can tend to view this. But the writer is saying much more than that. It's not just recall them to mind or think of them fondly. But this is the idea of a careful, thoughtful, reasoned scrutiny, a consideration of their faith and their faithfulness and the impact that that has had on them. And in that way, if we understand, remember in that sense, then we can say, okay, it could perhaps refer to those who ministered to them and have since moved on. I don't think that's what the writer is saying. But if that's the way that you wanted to understand it, he would be saying, hold tightly to that legacy. Remember them in the sense of considering, considering the impact that they had on you as believers, as a community. Believing, as I do, that these are individuals who are still ministering to them, it's the idea of being mindful, being mindful of them. Careful, thoughtful recollection, holding them in your mind. And interestingly, and this is important, the specific issue in this this call to remembrance or to careful close consideration is not the men themselves. But he says, considering the outcome of their faith, imitate them. The first exhortation is consider them, but the second one is imitate their faith. But what is this thing to consider them? It is to consider the outcome of their faith imitate them. So the specific issue in this call to remembrance is mindfulness of the outcome of their way of life. They were to give thoughtful, careful consideration and reflection, not to the men themselves, but to the lives they led and to the fruit that it bore. And his language here, this manner of life idea, the King James uses that term conduct, you know, which, or conversation rather, considering their conversation. It's an, that's an old term, you know, an old word uh, in Elizabethan English that carries the idea of the course or the manner of life. But that's really the idea. It's not their conversation, their verbal speech. But that's the idea. He's, not, he's looking beyond instances of conduct or specific things they can point to, to the very fabric and the orientation of their lives. The fabric and the orientation of their life, a key indicator of which is the fruit that it bears. The fruit that it bears. So his emphasis is on what the NAS has as the outcome of their manner of life. And that emphasis on the outcome is part of what has led people to conclude, okay, these are leaders, shepherds who have run their race well and now they have died. 
they have passed into the Lord's presence. And so look at the outcome. Look at, at, at the, the final result of their life. Well, I don't think that's what the writer is getting at. As, as I said in the first instance, his grammar refers to those who are still doing this work of leading. Those who are leading you. Those who are leaders. But secondly, this noun that's, that's rendered here, outcome, doesn't refer to a final product per se, but it carries more the idea of outflow or even egress. Paul uses it um, in the first Corinthian epistle where he, he talks about God giving to us in our temptation a way of escape, an egress. That's the basic idea here, an outflow. So not necessarily the final product, but the effusion, the outflow of a course of life. And we can see that even in the idea of fruitfulness. Fruitfulness isn't just a final product of faith. It is realized at the point that a Christian dies. It doesn't just appear at the end of our life. But as Jesus said, a good tree bears good fruit. And a bad tree bears bad fruit. Fruitfulness is is that which uh, is manifested over the course of the life of a tree, right? Not just at the end. And so the writer is saying, take note of those who are leading you, specifically with respect to the effusion of their course of life. What flows out of their course of life, the fruitfulness associated with it. So what is he getting at here? Let me just summarize this a little bit. He's calling them to consider and reflect on the lives of those leading them in totality, not specific instances, not specific actions, but the fabric, the totality of the life and the fruit that the spirit was bearing through their faithfulness. That's what's implied in this. The faithfulness of those leaders And implicit in that charge for them to scrutinize the fruitfulness of the faithfulness of these leaders is that these Hebrews themselves are a part of that fruit. When they consider the effusion or the outflow of the faithful lives of those who are leading them, it causes them to look at themselves. Right? They are a part of that outcome. They are a part of that effusion. They are a part of that fruitfulness of the faithfulness of those who are leading them. And so the implication then beyond that is that as they find in themselves the fruitfulness of the faithfulness of those who are leading them, it calls them to replicate in themselves that same faithfulness. with the implication beyond that being that their faithfulness also will bear fruit, fruit in the lives of others. Well, again, it's important to understand what he means when he calls them to imitate the faith. And I mentioned this already, but but he means that in a very specific sense. This isn't about saying, you know, Joe's a good guy, I'm going to be like Joe. 
This isn't about the individuals themselves. What he's calling them to do is to follow the pattern of faithfulness that has been modeled to them. The faithfulness that is re, that, that reflects and accords with their wholehearted embrace of what Jude calls the faith once for all delivered to the saints. In other words, what they're called to imitate isn't the people themselves per se, but the wholehearted, wise, disciplined, continual embrace of the faith, the truth as it is in Christ himself. When he says imitate their faith, that's what he's getting at. And I emphasize that because, again, faith is one of those slippery terms. Everything from, you know, keep the faith, brother. Faith as I believe it'll all work out for good or whatever. Or, you know, faith in this, faith in that. Faith is a concept that extends beyond Christian uh, notions or Christian theology. People of all sorts of convictions hold to their convictions, right? Religious or otherwise, People hold to what they believe to be true. But it's also true that many who claim Christian faith hold to notions, ideas, convictions, beliefs that actually differ from the good news that was proclaimed by Jesus' apostolic witnesses. This is why in the early church it was so important to hold to the apostles' teaching. Again, what Jude calls the faith once for all delivered to the saints. The faith. The corpus of truth. And the Bible uses that expression in the New Testament all the time. The faith. Not a person's faith. Not a person's personal convictions, but the faith. Paul, after he, on his first missionary journey, because he goes out to Iconium, Lister, and Derby through Asia Minor, and he comes back the same way. Luke records that he returned to those new fledgling communities of believers, and he was encouraging them to persevere in the faith. Telling them that it's through much tribulation that we inherit the kingdom of God. And you see Paul writing to the Corinthians and telling them that they are to be courageous, act like men, be steadfast in the faith. Not their own personal faith, not their own personal convictions, the faith. Hold to the faith. The writer wants his readers to see in their leaders fidelity to the faith as as expressed in the person and the work of Jesus and now taken out into the world by his apostolic representatives. The apostolic gospel. Hold to that faith and the fruitfulness that comes from that. And that's what he's calling for them to replicate. That's what he's calling for them to imitate. His burden is that his readers would show themselves to be Jesus' disciples in truth. 
And that meant that they would replicate in themselves the faith and faithfulness of the faithful disciples who have preceded them. That's the sense in which they're to imitate their leaders. Imitate them only insofar as their leaders are bearing truthful testimony to Jesus. Not just with their words, but with their manner of life. And that's what Paul said. He told the Corinthians, imitate me as I imitate Jesus. Be imitators of me as I am an imitator of Christ himself. In that sense, he told the Ephesians, as beloved children, be imitators of God himself by being imitators of Jesus. So by imitating their leader's faith in this sense, these Hebrews would be testifying to the faith. By imitating their leader's faith, they would be testifying to the faith. In other words, the living transformative truth that is God's triumph in Jesus himself. So he's not calling them to imitate other people per se, however godly, however faithful they might be in some sense, but actually to carry forward the unchanging truth of the faith that was delivered to them and nurtured in them. To carry that forward. Take what was brought to them and carry it forward. And you say, well, why do you say that? Well, that's why verse 8 is inserted. Jesus, the Messiah, is the same yesterday, today, yes, and forever. The writer didn't insert that in there as some little Trinitarian or, you know, statement of the deity of Jesus aside sort of thing. And often we want to, you know, pluck this out. That's probably one of the most familiar verses in the epistle to the Hebrews. Jesus, the Messiah, the same yesterday, today, and forever. But often it's plucked out and it's used as a proof text that Jesus is divine. And that's not the point that the writer is making. He's saying that those who preceded these Hebrews in the faith, regardless of whether they're deceased or now still laboring among them, which I think is the point, that that those who preceded them in the faith, those who brought the faith to them, those who have nurtured them in the faith, they testified to that faith to them by and bore its fruit through their instruction and they and their example. And these Hebrews were a part of that fruit. They had the same obligation to carry the baton, as it were, and pass it along to the next generation. Just as they had, they were the fruit of the faithfulness of those who brought this gospel to them, so they also were to carry that forward. But the point is they could only fulfill their obligation to the unchanging faith by binding themselves in word and life to the unchanging Messiah that that truth proclaims and attests. Jesus, the Messiah, the same yesterday, today, and forever. So they could draw encouragement, they could draw strength for their own race from those who preceded them because they serve the same triumphant Lord in the power of the same spirit, having embraced and having owned the same unchanging faith, the same unchanging truth. The Lord that these served and through whom they triumphed in their suffering, 
was the one who also they had embraced, who also, in whom also they stood, in whom they would also triumph. If Jesus the Messiah was sufficient for the faith and the faithfulness of those whom the Hebrews could look to and see themselves as the fruit of those men's labors, then they could be confident that he was sufficient for them as well. He's sufficient for them as well. In him, in the Messiah, they too had all that was needed to run their race. And so their faith and faithfulness in that way should draw on the faith and the faithfulness of their leaders. But also, it should encourage them to persevere and to, in a sense, bring that same legacy to those who would come after them. That's essentially what the writer is getting at. And what I want to do is use the rest of the time to flesh this out. Okay, what does this really look like? What does this look like for us? And here's where you may get a little bit challenged in your thinking, but I I ask you to bear with me. and think about these things. I'm calling this conclusion, as it were, being living witnesses. Being living witnesses. So what the writer is getting at is that God's design, here's kind of what's behind the scenes or implied in what he's saying. God's design for the testimony of his son and his gospel is an unbroken chain of witnesses. God's design for the testimony of Christ and his gospel is an unbroken chain of witnesses. Remember, even in chapter 2, the writer said, this gospel, this good news of salvation was proclaimed by the Lord. And then it was transmitted to, it was entrusted to those who walked with him, those that he sent out in his name. And they brought that good news to us. There is an unbroken chain of witness, all of whom stand on and draw from those who precede them and also, though, and then those ones serve as examples for those who will follow. Stand on and draw from those who went before and serve as examples for those who will come after. That testimony is grounded in what he calls here the word of God. And so that obligates this, those links in the chain of witness, this unbroken chain of witnesses, this obligates those links in the chain to be people of the book. But in a certain sense, those who know it as the spoken, truthful witness to the one who is true. In other words, it's not the, the, the issue here in, in being these witnesses isn't to become scholars of the text, per se. It's to actually know the one and be informed by the one who the text is actually talking about. Jesus said to his generation, you search the scriptures because you believe in them, you have eternal life. But these are the scriptures that testify of me. 
you believe somehow life, as Yahweh would bring it to you, is embodied in this divine scripture. But it actually, and you're right, but, but where that is found is in me. But you don't find me in this text. This is actually what Karl Barth was getting at. He's been largely misunderstood in this regard, at least. But this is what he was getting at when in rebuke even against the, the National Lutheran Church in Germany in the first half of the 20th century, he said the scriptures are not the truth. They are a truthful witness to the one who is the truth. We can become bibliolaters. We can become idolaters of the text. And that's not what it is to be people of the book. It's to be those who find in this truth the one who is the truth, the living, true Messiah, the one in whom God is known. We cannot be links in this chain if we are not those who know and continue to grow in our knowledge of Jesus the Messiah. That's what the writer means when he says, consider these who spoke the word to you. They didn't come doing a bunch of grammatical analysis or whatever, or, you know, the Bible is literature coursework. They came showing you, as Paul did, that how all of the scriptures testify to this one. The one in whom all of God's promises are yes and amen. But that true testimony that is through the knowledge of the scriptures is also and must be an enacted testimony. Considering the fruitfulness, the effusion of their manner of life, imitate them. This is more than knowing information. This has to be an enacted testimony. Why? Because as I said at the outset, this testimony, which is the proclamation of the good news, is the affirmation of new creation. And therefore, it must be enacted. Again, I say it all the time, if we go to people preaching the gospel and we bring them the true gospel, which is this good news that in Jesus, God has dealt with the problem of the creational curse. And by the resurrection of the Messiah, he has now begun this work of creational renewal. If it is the good news of the kingdom of new creation, then it begs the question, where is it? I don't see it. All things continue as they have from the beginning of the world. Where is the evidence of this good news? Where is the proof of it? It is the proof of it is the people who are sharers in it. The church is the proof of the gospel. It's the proof of new creation. So the scriptures recount God's faithfulness to his purposes and promises, and that faithfulness is fully manifest in the person and the work of Jesus. He is God's yes and amen. That's the gospel that we proclaim. That's the gospel that we proclaim. But it has to be an embodied truth. 
It's not, an informa- it's, not, it's not informational testimony. It can't be reduced to a tract you know, that, that, that has four steps to peace with God or whatever. That's not what it is. It's a living, tangible, enacted, manifested witness. And without that living, embodied witness, the spoken witness is actually obscured or diminished or even negated. It's negated. Sharing in Jesus' triumph, if we are believers, we are sharers in Jesus' triumph. We are Christ in the world. The church is the fullness of him who fills all in all. If it is the gospel of the Messiah and his triumph, we are the living, breathing, walking entailment of that. And that means, and this brings us back closer to the epistle to the Hebrews in one sense, that means sharing in his suffering and death. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. Christ lives in me. The life that I now live because my heart's still beating and I still go to my job and I still am walking around on this planet The life that I now live, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If any man is in Christ, new creation. New creation. Life out of death. Life out of death. And Paul says to the Galatians as he ends that epistle, He talks about what really matters. And he's dealing with this issue again of of how are God's people really known? Is it it really about circumcision? Is it really about the things that made uh, the Abrahamic people defined in the time of preparation? And he says, behold, what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. These are my words. This is my truth being brought to you. Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised simply that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Those who are circumcised, they don't even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But may it never be that I should boast in anything except the cross of Jesus the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, through whom, the, through whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision is anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And those who will walk according to this canon, this rule, this truth, peace and mercy be upon them, even upon the Israel of God. If any man is in Christ, new creation. But if we are sharers in the life of Christ, we are sharers in the suffering that came to Jesus. Not because we go looking for it, not because we do stupid things, but Jesus said, as it was for me in the world, it will be for you. If, you, if, if the world sees me in you, it will respond to you the way it responded to me. 
To the extent that they embraced my teaching, they will embrace yours. To the extent that they persecuted me, they will persecute you. They will treat you this way, not because you're a bad employee or you're a jerk or, you know, you hit people over the head with your Bible and all those things can cause us to be persecuted in a sense. But he's saying that if you are bearing my fragrance in the world, you will suffer for it, just as I did. And that's the context, that's the perspective in which he wants his readers to understand their own suffering. They're suffering for the faith. And he says, look at those who are leading you. Look at the outcome of their faith. You're the fruit of their labors. But they obviously have suffered as well. And this goes all the way back to the Messiah himself who suffered. This is the suffering that comes to faithfulness. And as it was for these Hebrews, so it, was, it will be for all who live godly in Christ Jesus. Not because they're going looking for suffering, not because they're, you know, Bible bangers or whatever it happens to be, but because they are Christ's life and likeness in the world. This is what Paul is getting at, and, this, and with this I'm done, but this is really what he's getting at in 2 Corinthians Paul is writing to the Corinthians in the context of tension and struggle and resentment, division between him and them. They're at odds with him. He's been the, he was their father in the faith, but they've gotten sideways with him, and they're beginning to question his apostleship. They're beginning to question his motives. They're setting him in contradistinction to other super apostles, as he calls them. They're setting him in contradistinction to Cephas and to Apollos. And Paul writes to them, and he writes to them, trying to encourage them concerning all that he has suffered. Good news has come to him now from Titus, and he's encouraged of a kind of reconciliation with them. But he wants them to understand and think again about his own life, his own apostleship. Part of what caused them to question him was that he seemed to be a person who talked tough in his letters or was this lofty figure, but his life seemed to be filled with suffering and difficulty, and he seemed to be an irrelevant guy, an unimportant, unimpressive person. And he rehearses with them all of what he had suffered, even to the point of despairing of life. And he said, but thanks be to God who always leads us in his triumph in Christ and bears through us everywhere his fragrance. You have this apparent paradox between suffering and affliction. Even Paul's own struggles in his mind and heart what he will call a messenger of Satan to buffet him, doubts and fears and insecurities, imprisonment, all of these things that he had struggled. And he says, but all of that is set in the context of us being ambassadors of the new covenant. Whatever was the glory associated with Moses and the, the old covenant, that glory is nothing compared with what has come in the Messiah. And all of what you see in me, the paradox of, 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 of seeming, you know, being crushed and, 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 and where's the glory and where's the victory, 
All of that, he says, is this glory that is in the face of Christ that we are bearing and we are manifesting. The God who said, let light shine out of darkness has caused his light to shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of the gospel of of the Messiah who is the image of God. And he says, all of this, we're, we're messengers, we're heralds of this new covenant, and that brings suffering. But all of that is for your sake. We're suffering for the sake of you. Death is at work in us that life would be at work in you. We speak with the spirit of faith. And we can tell you, Corinthians, that the God who raised Jesus from the dead is going to raise us up and present us together with you in that day. All of these things are for your sake. That the grace of God, which is reaching more and more people, will cause thanksgiving to abound to God. Death is at work in us, that life would be at work in you. And this bearing of the dying of the Lord Jesus in our daily existence is for you, but it also is bearing the life of Christ in our experience as well. Now, it's in that context that Paul, in a sense, gives his defense of or or kind of concentrates in a concentrated way this uh, uh, defense of his apostleship. He says, and in, in, in this is uh, chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians. He says, we do not lose heart, this is the end of 4, but though our outer man is decaying, our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look at things that are not, while we don't look at things that are seen, but the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, passing. The things which are not seen are eternal. And he goes on to talk about, you know, groaning in the tent of, of his body, not longing to be unclothed, but to be clothed with his resurrection body. And to prove faithful, to walk this out, to prove faithful through his suffering. And again, how it's all for them. He says, verse 11 of chapter 5, Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we, are made mani- but we are made manifest to God. Whether we persuade men or not, whether they see us for who we are or not, we are made manifest to God. And I do hope that we are also made manifest in your consciences. We are not trying now again to commend ourselves to you, but we are giving you an occasion to glory in us, to see us rightly that you may have an answer for those who actually take pride in appearance and not in heart. If we are beside ourselves, it's for God. If we are of sound mind, it's for you. For the love of Christ controls us, constrains us, having concluded this, that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. This is the meaning of the death of Christ, the death of Christ that we bear in ourselves, that the life of Christ will flow out to the world. Paul says, this is the way you should look at us and our suffering. This is the way you should understand your own suffering. And so now, from now on, we recognize no man according to the flesh. We don't think of people the way we did before. Even though we thought of Christ in that way, according to the flesh, we do know him in that way no longer. And so if any man is in Christ, new creation, the old things have passed away, behold, new things have come. 
And all of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and entrusted to us this ministry of reconciliation, which is what, Paul, that God in Christ was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us this word of reconciliation. That's the truth of who we are. That's the truth of what this is about. You see an unimpressive man. You see a suffering man. You see a beaten down man. You see an impotent man. And what you, what really the truth of it is, is we have been entrusted with the word of reconciliation. Life out of death. Death producing life. The death of us unto your life. And so therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were entreating through us, we beg men on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now, here's the catch statement. This is where I want to end. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we should become the righteousness of God in him. And working together with him, we also urge you to not receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, at the acceptable time I listened to you, on the day of salvation I helped you. And Paul says, now is the acceptable time. Now has come the day of salvation. What's my point? Paul is saying in in verse 21, you know, we've gotten used to thinking of this as an imputation proof text. My sin imputed to Jesus, Jesus' righteousness imputed to me. That's not what Paul is saying. He doesn't say he made him to be no sin so that his righteousness would be imputed to me. He doesn't say that. He says so that we would embody the righteousness of God in him. And then he cites from Isaiah 49. What is the righteousness of God? The God who promised to arise and in the Messiah to renew and restore. The God who promised to make the Messiah the covenant for the sake of Israel and for the sake of the world. The God who promised to gather in the world and ultimately the whole the world of men and the whole creation into the Messiah himself. He says, that day has come. We are the proof of it. The righteousness of God, that God has been faithful to what he promised in the Messiah. We embody that truth in ourselves. We are the embodiment of the faithfulness of God. What God promised through his prophets has now come in Jesus himself. And we go out and we tell men God has reconciled the world to himself and his son and we are living proof of that. We embody in ourselves that faithfulness of God. So that's my point about being living witnesses. Do we need to know the scriptures? Yes. But we also need to understand that we are actually the embodiment of God's triumph in Christ. Do we believe that? Do we think our moments matter? Do we think our days matter? Are we just kind of hanging on until we can retire or hanging on until we can get a promotion or living for the next thing or, you know, having our eyes set on the ends of the earth or, you know, what, 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 are, we, what are we about? Do we think our lives matter? Paul was an unimpressive man to men, to people who were looking for a certain kind of man. 
And yet he could say, I, for all that I suffer, for all my unimpressiveness, for the fact that I don't appear even to be an apostle because I'm so beaten down, and, and I bear in myself all of these arenas of suffering and doubt and fears and difficulties, in all of that, God leads me in triumph, and the truth is that I am the embodiment of the faithfulness of God. You want to know whether God is true? Look at me. What you see in me is the truth of what God has promised in his Son. That's a profound way to think about the Christian life, and it's a profound way to think about how we draw from the faithfulness of those who have gone before and how we even become those who pass the baton to those who come after. What does it mean for us to be faithful stewards of this life? What does it mean for us to pass on the, God, the, the legacy of faith and faithfulness? Working together with him, we urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. The day of salvation has come. Don't misjudge what life in Christ looks like, but also recognize that we are the embodiment of the truth that God has been faithful. We are the gospel. We are the gospel that we proclaim, or we proclaim the gospel falsely. Father, in many ways, these are simple ideas, but they, I, to me at least, they are very profound. They press us beyond the realm of knowledge in the sense of mastering information and doctrine. They press us beyond the realm of, of uh, behavior. They press us to recognize that all of life is bearing about in our bodies, in our minds, in our beings, the life of the Lord Jesus. That we are the gospel that we proclaim. It's not just words that come from our mouth. It's the testimony of a faithful life. And faithfulness looks like the life that Jesus lived. A life that many can see as perhaps the antithesis of faithfulness, depending on what criteria they're holding up. Jesus certainly did not appear to be a faithful man to his own generation. He appeared to be a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of sinners, a man possessed by demons, the antithesis of holiness. A man who could never make the claim to be favored by Israel's God because he was a man who was afflicted, who suffered greatly, who was treated unjustly, who saw no vindication of his words in in his day-to-day life. How can such a one be favored by Israel's God? Father, may we bear this life that we have in Christ with boldness, with courage, with pride in the right sense of that, with conviction. What a glorious heritage we have. What a glorious legacy we are to leave behind. 
Help us to see that we are links in this chain of unbroken testimony. And that it comes in ways that we maybe wouldn't expect. It comes through the fragrance of Christ. It comes through embodying in ourselves the truth of your triumph in the Messiah. I pray for each one here, Father. I pray that these would not be confusing things, but I pray that each one would would take the responsibility, take the ownership of meditating on these things, chewing on them, wrestling with them. We cannot live the Christian life for anyone else. We cannot be faithful for anyone else. Each one must run his own race. We can be encouragers. We can stand alongside. But I pray that each one would take responsibility with these things. That we would be faithful stewards of this high calling that is ours in Christ Jesus. Forgetting what is behind, pressing on towards the goal of the prize of that upward call that you have given us in him. And it is true, all who have our mature in mind take this view of things. May it be true of us. Be gracious to us. Be patient with us. Lead us and teach us by your good spirit that Christ would be exalted in us, in his church, and through the church in the world. Amen.